0: Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Before we get into the episode, I've got two things happening right now that I'm really excited about. First, something that weighs really heavy on my heart is burnout potential. Everyone is so good at go, 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 glue track technology that we often just need to stop, rest, and reset. So I'm thrilled to announce Reset in Sedona, a restorative wellness retreat for women craving good food and adventure. Now, I have a lot of feelings about how retreats are non-negotiable, and I've been practicing for this for years, attending and hosting other private retreats. So if an intentional reset to fill your cup sounds good to you, you can head to the show notes to find the link for Reset in Sedona or go to com slash Reset in Sedona. And the second is that I'm currently taking intro calls for clients to start in the new year. I work with people that feel like they're doing everything right in health, but still have food sensitivities, subpar energy and mental focus, gut issues and eczema. I help them with a sustainable way to eliminate symptoms and feel their best using testing, synergistic nutrient repletion, and supporting several major systems in the body for balance. You can go over to kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. Both links will be in the show notes and on to the show. All right. Today on The Less Stress Life, I have Jenna DeCock, who is my co-pilot and other RD in private practice. And today we're flipping the script. She's going to interview me a little bit, or we're going to riff together on what kinds of labs we use in practice and why. This was actually her idea, which is great, and I love it. And so she's going to ask the questions. But Jen and I have worked together since, we think, about 2018 in some capacity. In that time, we've done a lot of different projects together, from testing recipes to writing a cookbook together to countless client handouts, um, really anything behind the scenes. If you like some of the stuff that we put out in the world, Jenna's uh, got her hands in it for sure. And now we see clients together literally equally sharing our one-on-one consults with our clients, which... I feel is in really good service to our clients because they're getting a little bit of the best of both of us. Jenna's really amazing at the details and being really thorough with lab evaluations. And I love that. But really, I prefer to do like big picture recap stuff. And what I tell clients is really like this underlying highlighting and synthesizing approach to all the information we work through. So we just are able to do what we both currently enjoy, which I think is always a work Always something that's evolving no matter what, which we're both really open to, which is also pretty cool about working together. So, she had this idea that it would be cool for other people to know how we choose the labs that we run with clients. And I thought that was really good as well. And something we're also working toward here in our practice and in our business is just being more generous with the clinical pearls we've gained from working with clients for lots of years and just sharing what works and doesn't work. So, consider this kind of a, our first foray into that. And it really supports the mission of this channel and this podcast of helping you heal yourself. So thank you so much for joining me today, Jenna. Can't wait to talk about this.
1: Yeah, I'm very excited to dive into labs too, because I think it's cool to benefit both as a practitioner learning this info and then also client or potential client. Like, yeah, we actually run. What do we do behind the scenes? What labs are we yeah, looking into or are important. So with that being said, though, obviously, it takes time to figure out what labs are actually worthwhile to run in practice. So maybe let's go back to the beginning of how you started and what labs were you initially
0: running with? When I first started in private practice, it's a bit of a long story, but I will just say that I started with food sensitivity testing. And one thing I want to say about labs in general is that you can spend a lot of money on labs for sure. And I used a joke that you could tell if clients were from California because in certain areas, there's areas where people spend many, many thousands of dollars in labs. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but sometimes labs aren't all useful and sometimes they can be a little confusing and it's just a lot to do everything at once. I think that there can be layers. And so it's a matter of what kind of a first step and what's a second step and how much longevity can you get out of those labs and what kind of interventions and things can you do? What I really don't want to do is confuse someone or make them feel really overwhelmed. I want to be able to take them through a framework that makes sense that they can maybe reproduce, but also I want the labs to be obviously useful for them. Most of the time, people land in functional medicine because they're not being validated somewhere else, right? They're not finding answers to something somewhere else. So there's a lot of layers to that. You can take the basic like $3 labs that a provider runs, and you can find deeper information there. That's very possible. But one of the things we do is run labs that the doctor doesn't usually have access to. It's a more sensitive test. So to answer your question, you asked me where did things start? And I said, my practice really started with food sensitivity testing. But as time has gone on, for me, life and practice, they have a little bit of a game element to them. So I now say my goal is what can we do that gives us the biggest return on investment and makes the most sense to people and validates them the most? So overall, my values changed. When I was first starting to do food sensitivity testing stuff, and this was like 2016, it was great. It was magical for people. They felt so much different. And you can find all kinds of information about this online. People will go through a diet change and they feel incredible. But what was the long-term plan? The long-term plan was that a lot of people were having food reactions because of what was going on in their gut. And so the food sensitivity testing was great until it wasn't great anymore. And it's so funny, they say that God will just put things in front of you as you need them, or he won't give you something you cannot actually handle. And so probably when I was just getting started, it was like, here's what I could handle. I'm coming from a food background. This was fun to have all these different lenses on which, because there's a lot of details around foods and what is heavy in salicylates and what's this. There's a lot of details. But the long game was, is that are people really sensitive to these things? Are they sensitive to food chemicals or is there, what's the root cause underneath of that? So big picture here with food sensitivity stuff is there's a lot we could say. We have entire podcast episodes about this, about the types of sensitivities versus allergies. Is it really a long-term thing? No, not usually. Um, sometimes, but not always. But my values changed. And overall, I really didn't want people to be restrictive unnecessarily because it further messed up, screwed up their adrenals and thyroid stuff, which long-term wasn't really supportive you may or the listener may or may not know that my personal story I made my health worse with an elimination diet because sometimes that messaging to the immune system there's some things where it can just you can just increase the overall sensitivity but there are times where I occasionally use that testing because it is it can be useful and the case uses for it are certain autoimmune cases and certain in cases of inflammation and what i mean by that is maybe you're having inflammatory water weight of probably 10 or more pounds fluctuating every handful of days. Sometimes it's useful in that case. And then it can also be useful in those cases if people come here and ask for that. I have people who might benefit from it, but we don't do it because it's going to add more stress to their life. And that's actually the opposite of what our goal is. Our goal is not to add more stress and not to create something that feels like unsustainable. And so I really don't use it as much as I used to. And that's okay. That's okay talking about other tests I no longer use unless you have anything you want to cut in and say here.
1: I just wanted to emphasize, well, with the food sensitivity testing, I love the analogy you always use of when it's beneficial. It's kind of like you, and correct me if I'm saying this wrong, you, almost um, if you had a broken leg, it's you sitting down almost on a chair, like getting that pain inflammation to slowly side while you work on actually addressing. Oh, yeah.
0: Fixing your food oh, yeah. That's so one of course. my things. In It's the broken angle analogy. Like food is the reason Yeah. I'm going to further emphasize the analogy that I've used for years to try to make it make sense. It's like, I know that you feel better when you change this diet. And that is amazing. That's like when you break your ankle and you sit down, it's immediate inflammation reduction, but you still have to put a cast on it. You still have to heal it. You still need to correct the, let's call it an imbalance, a fracture. You need to correct the fracture that's there, right? Or the, you need to line that back up and bring things into balance. I love to just because what we do, there's a lot of steps and details, which is why we do it one on one because when you don't do it the way we do it, I was just explaining this to a friend the other day who was asking me questions about her child's eczema, and I was explaining to her how anytime I like, circumvent the way we practice, I'm not really in good service to people because everyone wants something to be simple, but actually there's a lot of ups and downs, so we want like help people through those ups and downs until they're done, so it's kind of like I can just like, throw a cast on, but if there's no follow up to take it off like Oh, that's. Kind of, there's some pieces here, and you're totally right about the food thing. There's always more than one way to do everything, and we tend to have people come in. I think in general, there's also been a shift. I hope, and I hope we're shifting in functional medicine. There's, it's very generic to just automatically do an elimination diet, but I think people can eat a whole foods diet, right? I think they can eat, and that's what we emphasize in practice now. Is certain we have some, some details that we emphasize around food but they're optional. They're around like getting enough digesting. A lot of food sensitivity stuff is actually an issue with digestion. Point blank. That's it. It's like there's an issue with digestion, a cascade of issues. And so we have to unravel that whole process that has ensued.
1: I think that leads nicely into just asking what we currently use in practice or what you actually transition to when you realize, okay, how am I actually okay, putting that perfect. back on? Okay. Food, Let's do so
0: that. And then Later, let's also circle back to some other tests that we don't use anymore. Really, it was a one thing at a time. I think another question clinicians sometimes ask me or people that are getting into prep practice or maybe are a little bit newer is how did you decide what test to use? Like what you're asking. It's like I started somewhere and it worked for a while until it didn't work. And then I added something new. And then... That worked great. And so essentially, you just add something as you need it. I feel like you can't replace experience and that's okay. You can cut it with mentorship, but I think experience is your best educator, whether you're a clinician or a client. It's the same. I tell our clients all the time. When you experience success, you're going to get it better. The end. I can explain it until I'm blue in the face, but as soon as it all clicks together for you, it's just going to make sense. And I can just tell when it happens. So after food sensitivity testing, I did bring in stool testing or gut testing. We still use that most of the time. And maybe I'll take this opportunity to talk about some of the things I did. So I use stool testing or gut testing. It's a poop sample. It's imperfect, 100% imperfect. It's a snapshot in time. So one thing that we must do is a good job with interpretation. So I always tell people we must look at symptoms and test results equally, if not symptoms even more importantly than test results. And some practitioners will tell you that I no longer use stool testing. Remember that people come to us or a practice like ours because they're not getting answers with their regular provider. Okay, so I want to give them answers. And the stool test I'm using looks at a lot of different markers. It looks at digestive function, how the enzymes are being produced. It looks at immune function in the gut. It looks at gluten sensitivity and just basic inflammatory markers in the gut. It looks at normal bacteria. It looks at weeds in the gut or dysbiotic bacteria. It can screen for some fungus, and I'll just mention that fungus doesn't always shut out in the stool, so it's imperfect. This is where we, every single person, we check their fungal symptoms, and we still address fungus if their fungal symptoms are talking loudly, even if it's a stool test, right? We don't just say, oh, it's not on your stool test. You don't have an imbalance. We check the other symptoms. I think that's a really good point, um, or it's like, duh. Fungal symptoms would include white-coated tongue, itchy ears especially, itchy scalp, um, history of yeast infections or vaginal infections, athlete's foot, toenail fungus. Those are all like, duh, of course those are fungal symptoms. It could be sign. All of those are symptoms. And so if you have fungus in your sinuses, do you think it's always going to show up in your poop Not necessarily, right? So it doesn't always shut out in the GI. Um, what else is on that test? Single-celled protozoas, parasites, um, multicellular protozoas, worms, which are you almost never see in testing. And on that, no. Another test we use that we didn't even talk about before we jumped in here is occasionally I'll and do a second stool test if someone need like hundred percent needs validation. Let me give you a couple examples of people we recently had. We've had people in very recently that were are working with other practitioners, and when you hear the story, this is where the story of like, tell me about the onset of the symptoms that we're experiencing that we need to correct. Sometimes that story leads us to think, how could you not have a parasite? <laughs> this started on this experience, like you're camping in the mountains and that's an easy, get stream water and pick up certain protozoans, to be honest. Or you were in this other country and it started literally when you got home. Not that you need to be in another country to pick up something like that. But maybe this person hadn't been validated. And unfortunately, parasites don't show up on testing very beautifully. But there is some other specialty testing that we will occasionally run side by side, because if it's going to be there, usually it's going to show up there. Okay. So we sometimes do that. About stool testing. I am even sometimes hesitant to talk about the type we use Because something new that's happened is that, and this isn't right or wrong, it's just that people think the test is the answer only. And so if I mention the test, people can say, oh, I had that test done, but then they still have these problems. And so what happens then is I have to literally go through someone else's work and see what was missed or why something wouldn't have worked because I don't ever want to have someone do something that's useful for them. And sometimes we have people, they've done a recent test and it's something I can use, and we don't do that test for them. We just use the results they had suddenly that their practitioner did not interpret very effectively or they didn't interpret well or do a very good protocol. That unfortunately happens a lot Not that we're trying to put out into the world. Come to us, it's like, it takes me a long time to go through all that stuff, but it's okay. It's not a problem. It's unfortunately just kind of the landscape we're in right now. People talk about the tests that they use. People go order the tests that people say they like. They expect the t- test to do all the heavy lifting. Actually, the point, that's actually not how it works. <laughs> the symptoms and the expertise, unfortunately, do the heavy lifting, in my opinion. And this just happened the other day for a client for us, too. We had this pediatric client. And the way the onset was of the case, I was like, it's totally gonna be this. This is what I think it's going to be. The case, the stool test came back with an inflammatory profile, which is something I made up based on experience. No one told me this is what this is, but it happened. So this pediatric client very symptomatic GI wise, very symptomatic, right? But it's been going on for long enough where inflammation has set in at this point. And this happens for adults that have been going, like where stuff has been going on a long time. The villi and the GI, um, when you're just getting like a snapshot poop sample, like literally a picture, you're not going to get like deep stuff buried in the villi. It's like the cracks under the stove, right? Unfortunately, the poop, like when you take a picture of the kitchen, you are not getting a picture of the dirt under the stove. Um, there are some ways you can fix that, but it's not easy, quick, and cheap. If I was going to try to correct this, I would use proteolytic enzymes, which, or there's a few, there's actually a few things you could do here. You could potentially change diet and maybe get this to look better also, but that may not be accessible. And to be honest, people are usually overwhelmed when they come in the door. So we just have them usually do the poop sample, and then we just use (laughs) clinical experience to correct, to correct. And so what happened with this, this test was it came back with this inflammatory picture, which to me is, Just low, good bacteria, which makes all the other bad stuff look also really low. It's falsely low. Like it's usually a lie because if you're very symptomatic, there's usually something. So we tend to treat by symptoms instead. Okay, so I'm talking about this GI test we use. We sometimes add on an extra parasite test. I have tried other GI tests as well, and that's okay. I'm always like on the lookout, is there something better? Because the one I use isn't perfect, but I just don't feel that there can be a perfect GI test when it's a snapshot it's just not perfect. Maybe a three-day stool test maybe would be better. Maybe that's something, and we sometimes turn our test into a three-day test, not too often, but every once in a while, I make that recommendation to people. But there's other, I won't name all these companies, but there's another comp because people, like the companies change, but there's a company out there, I will not name it, but they make a clinical GI test. I think it can be a very good GI test, but when you get the client results, next to all the bacteria, it says this is validated. And let me just throw out an idea here. That's like, this bacteria is indicated in colon cancer. And I'm like, this is not helpful for a client to see this because this does not mean they have colon cancer. And it's actually just horrifying. And if we do things that induce stress to people's lives, we're not serving them ever. The end. Like the more you increase stress for someone, if whether it's intended or not, it's actually never helping. <laughs> so that's why I don't use that one. Cause I think it's silly that they do that. Not that I don't think there's any clinical utility there, but I don't think it supersedes the one that we're using. So unless I find something that's going to be better than what we're using, I've also trialed some other consumer-based tests. One of them starts with a V, been around a long time, and I think that test has changed a lot as well. And then I've also used some that use shotgun genomics, and there's all kinds of methodology here, whatever. And I just didn't find them clinically useful. If they don't have all these markers, I see in a lot of certain types of cases if I'm looking for particular markers to show me different things. And if these tests don't them and I've had a lot of success with addressing certain markers of elevation in the past, then you know what's it doing for me? Nothing, right? So another test, one last thing on GI testing, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth testing. I used to use this. I don't think it's worth the money to do it anymore. So if something costs someone money and it's not really serving them, then I just don't do it anymore. So small intestinal bacteria overgrowth has to do with just a really two bacteria that are being measured, methane and um, hydrogen sulfide and methane bacteria. Sorry, I was in my head. Which two bacteria are we looking at? But in the small intestine. I think that this just doesn't make sense because if you have a lot of bloating or symptoms within two hours after eating, that's supposed to be the small intestinal um, transit time. And so if you have symptoms zero to two hours after eating, then it's like, duh, of course there's SIBO automatically. But if there's SIBO, so there's all these. So why this gets talked about is because conventionally SIBO is now being recognized more commonly and you can go do a SIBO test at your regular provider. And so because this is recognized, it's being treated, it's talked about, et cetera. And so what happens a lot of with SIBO is they go in, they do a, what's most common is a breath test. There are some other things. So a breath test is kind of annoying because you have to do a special diet for a day. Let me explain this and then you decide if you feel like this is more stressful. You like basically rice and chicken for a day and then you eat and then you drink this stuff and then you like breathe into a tube. I think it's like every 15 or 20 minutes for two hours. This sounds like a pain in the butt, right? So you even just do the test to really validate that there's one or two bacteria out of range in the small intestine. What happens then if this is positive is that people are frequently put on antibiotics, but we're not addressing the GI above the small intestine, stomach acid and maybe range pylori, things like that. So there's a lot to say about that, an unpack there. And then the lower intestine, which has all kinds of bacteria. So to me, it just seems short sighted. The test is a pain in the butt and it doesn't change what I'm doing. So I don't care. I just dropped it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If it's not like going to make a difference or not going to change how much someone feels or doesn't change what I'm doing, then I'm going to drop it. And so sometimes to go back to our pediatric patient the other day, where um, we had a conversation because we were everybody. So here's what the results came back with. Okay no problem that's not what the symptoms say so we're going to make sure we address the symptoms cuz all anyone really cares about is that their symptoms go no one really cares that they, they want their test result to validate them but only if it also makes their symptoms go away so this is part of where we just to me i think developing trust and rapport with our clients and also just not being idiots i don't know how else to say it that. that's kind of my preference let's not treat the test only let's treat the person and that makes sense when i give it context that makes sense when i give it context so let me summarize. Testing for validation the client, right? Because we want them to feel good. Validation feels good in the nervous system. The test that helps us change the protocol. Let me give you another example. I've had, because sometimes I've got good rapport with someone, right? I can remember this case. I had this little kiddo and I'd already had the parents for clients. So we have good rapport. Everything is great. And then we're checking in. We're checking on the symptoms of this child. I think it was eczema. Of course it was. Probably, I don't know, all the other symptoms. And I said, okay, well, we can do something prophylactic, meaning I can guess. And we can do some interventions. And if it doesn't work, then we can always test. So we guessed. We did some interventions. It wasn't enough. What happened was it was free, right? We didn't have to pay for a test. But time elapsed, which no one wants to have time and pain. So time elapsed. We just said, well, that wasn't effective. So we're going to test and figure out what's going on in there. We get the test back. And there's some really serious stuff in there that takes some really specific treatment or intervention, or protocol, okay? it take very specific intervention or protocol because certain things only respond to certain things. And so that's the beauty of if the test is necessary to make sure I edit that protocol to be effective, then I'm just going to keep using it. If it shows me something that I really need to know to be an effective clinician, then I will use it. Because usually people come to us because they want to see things on paper, Maybe they're sick of just like having their arm pushed on and told them they have something. Whatever. These are all experiences that I've had. (laughs) These are my client experiences also. So validation change the protocol. And then also, how can we minimize our testing for best ROI? So why would I add SIBO testing if it doesn't do anything? And then also, what doesn't add more confusion like to the whole pot? And so I'm going to give an example. We use hormone testing. We specifically, we occasionally use serum hormone testing, but we also use dried urine testing for comprehensive hormones or the Dutch test. It's just my personal belief for the clients we typically work with that I don't think it's a first step for them because, and this is just, again, you could do a before and after. It would be fine. But again, I'm looking for like lowest testing input for maximum ROI. It's just my game in my head. And hormones are impacted by gut health, toxic burden, blood sugar, stress, and micronutrients. And we're influencing all of those things when we work with clients every single one of them. And the Dutch test has a lot of amazing information. But if we do that alongside of a GI test, it actually would feel really pretty overwhelming and confusing. I know because I've done this. Everything we do here is based out of experience. And I just don't think that worked very well. For, I don't think that was in best. We really have a couple lenses, right? Was that in good service to someone? Actually, it wasn't. It sounded like it was, right? It's like sound around all these tests, but it's actually a lot. And you can't do everything at once. Even when people get a Dutch test back, I'm really actually pretty careful when I have people do them, because it's not like you can just poop in a box and send it off. That's actually easy. When people do a dried urine test for comprehensive hormones, there's a few varieties here. If they're not having a period normally, the road to even testing is maybe two months, probably. Um, It's very likely, because you have to see if you're ovulating, you know, if you're not having a menstrual cycle, and you can ovulate out of one side or the other. So you can test, you can check for ovulation for up to two months before you do the test, and or you need to work around your period. So it's just not very quick turnaround. It's like a nice idea, but not very quick turnaround time. And the test is really essential if you, I think if you need to know estrogen metabolism, but if you just need to know if your progesterone is low, then probably just go get a serum level. That's in my opinion.
1: Would you agree? And I just agree with the whole idea. Like with the Dutch, yes, I love it in theory. Like everyone yeah. tests their hormones, who doesn't? But in terms of the actual practical information you gain from it, more than likely we can already get yeah. that just based so just would love to save you money obviously
0: that time yeah it's it all sounds you. nice but just in the how do we actually get, get the results and get you what you want let me start by asking you why you want to do the test in the first place that's always my first step before i even do one of those because if i understand that you have xyz symptom okay that's a symptom of this this is really great if you want to see where if you have estrogen metabolism issues and or and I just like to make sure I say this all the time because I think it's really essential. If you have a history, family history of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, cervical cancer, those are all symptoms of excess estrogen or estrogen metabolism, or they're cancers of estrogen metabolism issues very commonly. And the Dutch test was, up until recently, I think the only estrogen metabolism test. I think there may be some other things entering the market that we have not had a chance to fully test and check. And those are consumer-based tests. I had a, we just had a client do one, and I can't even remember the name of it. It doesn't matter. But we're always going to be on the lookout. Well, kind of like test things out and see if it's going to be useful. Thinking of over- And again, death testing can be great, but there's a lot of potential information to gain from it. So it's just a matter of, is it the right next step, which would really help you? Or is it going to send you off on like, the rabbit holes and actually make you feel like you're more scattered? And that's a common problem. Like, I don't want you to feel more scattered when you're done here to be, um, of course not. Another, I just want to throw in one more comment. We used to do genetic testing and Jenna. Did the reports on them. They used to make my eyes, yep. they may used to make me want to pull my eyes out of my head because they're like, it's like computer coding. <laughs> That's what it reminded me. Yeah, and I basically. think that it can be helpful. I remember doing my own genetic test results and I remember feeling very validated because it was after my big eggs and of whatever year, 2015, 2016, whatever that was. And I had mostly corrected that, but I did genetic testing and it essentially said, yeah, your liver sucks like genetically. And that was really validating at the time. And now, even though it's nice to know that, I think if I just would look at my family history, well, of course that it does. Look at all the stuff like my parents and my aunts and uncles all have. If you have a bunch of cancer in your family, maybe your drainage and detox suck. I know I am not genetically blessed. End of story. And so does the genetic test actually do a ton? A lot of times it can be a little bit brain numbing, I feel. And I would usually try to make sure there was like a top three to five takeaways. But by the time we were at the end of working together, because we would usually do it very last thing if we were going to add it on, it didn't really change anything, to be honest. It was like, I already knew these things about, because if you're listening to your symptoms and how your body behaves around things, you can learn so damn much already. And so for us personally, we I wanted to pull my eyes out doing genetic testing review, and I didn't really feel like it was, like, I just don't even, we don't even offer it. And people don't ask about it very much anymore either. Um, there are some genetic markers we can get when we do like a Dutch test, and that could be useful, but there's always a lot more under the hood on every single test, in my opinion. Yeah. So stool testing. All right. What else? So all that to say, we often use stool testing most of the time. Every once in a while, we don't. So carry on with your question.
1: So then I guess, so we're looking at the stool. What else have you been, or have you found beneficial to look into or what other tests are actually really insightful in terms of what's going on with the client, why they might actually having just sluggish energy. This can even give us insight into digestive status as well, thyroid Yes, status. I
0: know so you're going to, I know what you're leaning from. into is to talk about hair tissue mineral analysis. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I'm going to talk about. And before I do, I'm just take a quick detour to mention that we dump, We sometimes do mycotoxin or mold testing in clients, but it's for validation. And sometimes if people already know they had an exposure a pressed house, then I don't think it's worth their money. Because the validation on the stool test costs money. So it's not like super cheap to validate. So validation is good if you are not all on the same page and you're like if husband and wife are not all on the same page or people need to see the validation to know what they are doing. Sometimes the symptoms are just so crazy that it's like, of course, this is the problem and they had a known exposure. So it's just not even worth spending the money to test in the body. It's not like a good use of the resources, but sometimes it is. So I usually do mycotoxin or mold testing if we need validation, and to see the severity. And there, we've done it at all junctures. Um, And so you just always have to change how you read the results based on junctures. I've had people do the mole testing after they've done protocols, and the results are going to look a little bit different. So I have lots of feelings about that. We have two or three podcasts about that. So I'll just mention, yes, we pull things in if we feel like we need them or they're going to be of service to a client if they're going to help them and change what we do. But if we can figure something out from symptoms and history... And the client and I trust each other, right? Or we all trust each other, good or poor, and we can save them 500 bucks. Then we do that. So back to your point, which is like, what kind of testing can we do that tells us a lot? So let me lead into this. There was there, I forgot about this test. I used to do a lot of comprehensive micronutrient testing and it was awesome. And insurance partially covered it. So it was a no-brainer. It was like $180 after insurance covered it. And then the, the test was good. The lab administration was bad. I love behind the scenes stuff, by the way, like just love knowing like what's going on at that company where everything is like falling apart. Probably. So we used to do a lot of conference and okay. micronutrient testing and it gave people good results. And I remember I had this client who was a physician's assistant. and I remember she just I just remember her singing so many praises. She was like, I just love this test. I just rem- explicitly remember her loving it because she got more results from that than doing some of the other things. If you fix people's nutrient deficiencies, I very firmly believe That there's just a zillion symptoms that people are out like literally medicating for that are just nutrient deficiencies. I feel this like deeply. Nutrient deficiencies come are not always a root cause. They're usually the second step in what we do. That could be a whole podcast on its own. To that end, we usually bring in nutrient repletion second, typically. Unless people we can tell that they're just like have no resources and we start right away. Because if you have no resources, nothing works. (laughs) Meaning if there's no worker, nutrient workers there. Okay, so we started using hair tissue mineral analysis testing a few years ago after I went on retreat with some colleagues because we sit around and talk about stuff like this and talk about what we're all doing in practice. And I grew up with th- these colleagues, meaning I grew up in practice with them. And so that was a beautiful thing. But a few years ago, we started using it. Not so long ago, like in the last year, I was throwing away crap. I should have thrown away 10 years ago. And I realized I was first exposed to it in like at least 2009 or 10. I just thought it was really hokey at the time. So hair tissue mineral analysis testing. The main reason I use this is because there was a subset of clients that would go into relapse around gut issues and symptoms, and it's related to the stuff in the mineral analysis. Basically, if they've had stress and dumped out all their minerals, um, they're going to have sluggish thyroid, which is going to slow down their motility. And it's, I always call it the birdbath syndrome, where it's got stagnant. It's like the motility, the digestion, the water in the birdbath is stagnant and then crap gross in stagnant water. And so they have relapse from it. And uh, maybe I really cared about this because it was awesome. So I always say that most of my clients are just like, it's like, I can't really tell if I'm reading their history or my history sometimes, which is okay. It's been a very good, it, your experience is your best educator, right? So I innately understand what people are going through because I've been through it. And I was my favorite clinical picture that we see on the mineral analysis, which is your adrenals are a little fried, but you're still performing at a high level, like you're still a high performing person. And then your adrenals are also, or your thyroid is sluggish, but it doesn't show up in blood work, right? So you have thyroid symptoms, but it doesn't show up in blood work. What does that look like? It means under prolonged stress, I would lose a little bit of hair. My extremities would be a little bit cold, but I wouldn't, I didn't have thyroid labs that were off. I had dry feet, predisposition to dry skin, predisposition to fungal stuff were some of mine. And all of that can be related to a sluggish thyroid situation. So what do you do when your thyroid blood labs are normal, which is a common problem? I didn't really feel great, but I did my blood labs and things weren't normal. So this is the answer to that problem. Going into the tissue level and looking at how your body, because your serum, your body compensates. So if these particular nutrients that we see in the tissue are low, if they're low in the serum, like you're probably going to present to the ER because you're going to faint. Your body's just so good at pulling um, and trying to keep things in balance in the serum but in the tissue is where you have the losses. So it's really all the downstream effects. So it's like long-term, you're feeling like not awesome to the point where it's like, you're just used to it. So we use mineral analysis because if you are depleted in minerals, which minerals are depleted under stress, it just depends on like which ones, how fast, et cetera, then digestion will be affected. Hormones will be affected. Detoxification will be affected. Energy will be affected. Pretty much everything because they're nutrient workers. They're workers. So workers are needed all over the body. So when we start to put back those nutrients in the right order, and so this what's fun about this is that it's good or bad. I think it's good and bad is that I think that this testing is hard to interpret. And I will say that before we added it to practice, I actually tried to learn about it from other sources and I thought it was not good. (laughs) The education I had gotten was just crappy. It was like, oh, people are going to feel really bad when you do this and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, that doesn't sound like a good fit for me because I don't want to make people feel bad. I'm not attracted to this at all, actually. Never mind. I actually don't want to know anything about this. But the way we do it now is really food-based. It's really sustainable. And here's the crux. Here's the, the bottom line. It's really synergistic. And when you're doing the other micronutrient testing I used to do, the one that was used to be covered by insurance, it definitely no longer does. When you would do that, people would feel better. But it wasn't in a synergistic way. And something that would like I would fall over is when people would say, they would say, oh, I'm still on all the stuff you put me on eight months ago. And I was like, oh my gosh, why? Oh, and so when you go on certain things for a long time, they create other, every nutrient has an antagonistic and synergistic relationship. Most of them do. Most of them do. And so if you're on certain things for so long, they can create other depletions. For example, what is most horrifying when people come in the door if they've been on it forever? Vitamin D forever, iron forever. These have all kinds of implications. So if there's a lot of cool levels, there's a lot of stuff for us to dig into on minerals and the way we practice, we can pull back those layers each appointment, get a little deeper each time. The first appointment when you go through the middle is like, let me get the base, like the most important things done first. And as you start these things, you're going to start to feel better typically. And then we can get a little deeper and start to feel a little deeper and feel better. I feel pretty happy about the situation. I'm not sure how you feel. I can't remember all the, as you and I were talking before offline, it was like, it's kind of blur since you've worked here. You've seen everything (laughs) behind the scenes forever. Why do we do HTMA? Because I want sustainable synergistic results. I want people to feel good forever, right? I don't want them relapsing. That's horrifying to me as an achiever. I do not like people relapsing. So this allows them to understand to one, be validated, right? In those symptoms. And this is also where like, I've really started to shy away from even a lot of blood labs. We do run blood labs for our clients. They're optional. We let them choose their blood labs. We educate about a handful that aren't really common ones that their provider would usually draw. So we're trying not to kind of like redundant, like, we tell, we educate them on like what you could get from these values because we're humans. And so we're trained to think, oh, yeah, blood lab, that's normal, right? And so allow them to choose if they want to run blood labs. We run blood labs. We use them if they're going to be useful, right? But we, in transparency, we created this. We spent a lot of time creating a spreadsheet with all these normal blood values and all these things. And I just feel like it's, you don't fit in a box all the time around blood. So I have mixed feelings about it's like they can be useful. But the more we run like thyroid blood labs, like the more kind of disgr- like I'm just like less and less interested in the labs as compared to the minerals, and that's just where I.
1: And I think with the blood work, everyone's like, oh, just tell me like, am I high or low? But it's more, or what we're looking for, kind of behind the scenes again, are possibly patterns going on that actually indicate. I'm just going to use cholesterol for example. Yeah, your cholesterol may be high. But that's actually giving us information regarding a whole different area of your health right. you might How's not
0: your liver be working. aware
1: of. So cool with blood work to see patterns. But yeah, it's not as direct, again. And
0: as this is as, why FMV. we do the things the way we do it. It's like, I don't really care if you just want to get your blood labs and be told it's normal or not normal. Because that then go to your provider. They're already doing that for you. And then do some, like, if that's the kind of service that you want for us. And then I think you just have to know yourself. Like, I'm not fulfilled by that. And so I'm fulfilled by pulling it all together for my client to understand things. And so tell when I meet someone, like, if you don't really want to understand this, you probably should work with someone else. I want you to understand this stuff for your own benefit. Because once you understand things, and not like you're going to understand everything right away. That's not realistic, but... I want you to understand things so you can do things on your own, not just reliant on someone else, because that's what we're called to, especially after these last few years of uh, healthcare chaos, I'll just say, is we're called to optimizing our health on our own and being in charge, like taking responsibility for our health on our own to some extent. Not that it should feel heavy or whatever. Um, It's like, how do you make it fun at the same time? I think that's all valuable. And it's fun. I love when people say... Oh, I want to have fun doing this. Like anytime someone says, "I think this could be fun," I was like, "I love you, unicorn!" Like this is the best. I would love for you to feel that this is fun, and it doesn't have to suck. <laughs> it's just a fun process or experience to go through. It's like because we're taking people through a little bit of a few meshed together frameworks, right? The integrative process from Jeff Bland or Marley Robbins. It's like no, it's not carbon copied whatsoever. But it's like we've learned from these other processes and we've kind them to something that's synergistic, sustainable, gives good ROI, et cetera. And that's really the bottom line is like, how do people want to feel? How are we going to accomplish that? How are we going to keep it that way? That's like pretty much how we, that's how you come up with the labs that you run. It's like, what I do isn't what everyone else should do, but it works really well for us based on what I want. I have a friend who sees her clients for years and years, the same ones. And that is awesome. I miss my clients when they're gone often because I love them. I have some really cool clients um, and I've gotten better about developing or cultivating longer term relationships, probably more so even just this last year to 18 months, getting much better at that um, outside of working together. But that doesn't mean I want them to rely on me for the rest of their lives. I want them to understand. I want them to I, at the end of the day, like our core values are empowerment, efficiency and efficacy, which are not the same. Efficiency is like, actually, we're in excellence. So we talk about that, right? Every quarter we talk about, does this does it feel like this is aligned with our core values? And so that's the beauty of having your own business is I would like to run this better than the previous provider that I personally saw or whatever. So that's how we've landed on this. Any other questions related to this? Do you think we got it? I think we did. I think we did an okay job. Now you know, these are the labs we use in practice. Some of them we use almost all the time. Sometimes we trade them out. Sometimes if someone had something done recently and it's not in good service to just spend more money on it because they didn't even get the first they didn't even squeeze the results out of the first test, let's go ahead and do that. And that's where it is beautiful to talk to people individually. I really I love doing that with people. But I also appreciate when people are able to listen to this kind of podcast first and understand what we do. so it's just a they know, oh, of course that's what I would want. That's always the most fun when someone comes in and they've already get how we do things a little bit. And they want that synergistic, that sustainable approach. They want to go through that process, understand how it works, and do it effectively. Jenna, thanks for interviewing me today. And thanks for coming up with this topic for us. And on this note, we're accepting clients right now. I don't remember when this podcast comes out, if it's like in a week or two. But now is our end of year enrollment period, meaning I'm taking calls right now to assess someone's case. And then we get them the lab sent so they can do them at home. So that way, When the new year rolls around, we can do that first one-on-one hit the ground running, but still have the Christmas holiday off there. So it's just a matter of there's a little bit of takes a little time to get that stuff done before we can actually jump in and hit the ground running. So if that's interesting to you, you can go to kristabigler.com and find what you need there. Thanks so much, Jen. Appreciate you.